Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this rainy Thursday here in the nation's capital, where we are all making funeral arrangements for our dearly beloved Iowa caucuses. Coming up, we're going to try and make sense of the post-caucus chaos and an apparent split decision. What does success mean for Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg? What does failure mean for Joe Biden? And is there any chance Democrats ever again begin their primary with a caucus in Iowa? The answer is no, but we'll get to that. Every week, we will take you inside the race for the White House in a way only McClatchy's 30 newsrooms can, by talking about how the election is playing out on the ground in the states that will matter. I'm Alex Rorty, national political correspondent for McClatchy, and today I'm joined by Emily Cadet, McClatchy's political correspondent, who I assume, like the rest of us, is running on very little sleep. Indeed. <laughs> and we are pleased to welcome to the show Adam Walner, our intrepid politics editor, who has thankfully sifted through and edited my sleep-deprived gobbledygook that I have been sending to him lately. It's been a long week, Alex. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> it's been a real long week. So as we tape this Thursday morning, we don't actually know who won the Iowa caucuses, though we do have a general sense of which candidates did well and which candidates didn't do well. Doing well, Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders, who are still duking it out for the state delegate lead. And Bernie Sanders, apparently, from what we know, Looks like he won at least what can be called the popular vote uh, out of the Iowa caucuses. On the other side of the fence, Joe Biden apparently finished fourth in this race. Obviously a disappointing result for him. We're going to get to that. Elizabeth Warren finished somewhere in between. And third, uh, Amy Klobuchar, a kind of distant fifth in this race. So let's let's start, though, if we can, with, with Bernie Sanders, Emily. He at least can claim a partial victory yeah. out of the caucuses. He is a clear front runner in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. Of course, he is from a neighboring state and won it easily in 2016. Is he a clear national front runner at this point? What say you? It's hard to call him a clear national front runner, despite what you would normally think for someone who wins Iowa and New Hampshire. He he's certainly polling pretty strongly in Nevada and South Carolina. I think the question that remains for him, and, and we've been talking about this this week, is how much he can consolidate his support and then also bring in other Democrats, other right. parts of the Democratic voter base. And my question with Bernie is, assuming some of these candidates who are splitting up the more center, moderate lane, whatever you want to call it, start to drop out. Do all those voters who supported those candidates move to one candidate? Mm -hmm. And and if Bernie's going to win around 30 percent of the vote in all of these states, maybe even a little less, can he expand that when it's a two or three person race? Or is he stuck at that level? And then, you know, someone like even a Mike Bloomberg, who's lurking out there and just doubled his ad spending in the Super Tuesday states, sweep in and, and really pick off voters who are skeptical about Bernie who think he's too liberal. Yeah, I mean, to me, that is the question in this race, right? If, if Bernie Sanders were any almost any other candidate, if you win Iowa, or at least partially win Iowa, you win New Hampshire, if you, you potentially go on to win Nevada, you're raising the most money. You're a candidate who came in second in 2016. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a candidate who, in normal circumstances, we would say, is this person about to run away with the race before we even get to Super Tuesday? Bernie Sanders is not a normal candidate, at yeah. least by his, by his own admission, and it plays to a lot of his strengths. But to your point, the question is whether the rest of the Democratic Party is going to be more resistant than you would normally expect to, to come and support someone who is a Democratic Socialist, who is not registered as a Democrat, has not been a member of the Democratic Party. 
and and someone who there are going to be in some corners of the party grave doubts about his electability. Yeah, and someone who really just hasn't done a lot of outreach historically or even in this race to the other segments of the voter base, whereas Elizabeth Warren is talking about unity and talking about bringing over people who may be more moderate, who may be more liberal, young and old. Sanders has really emphasized his ability to energize a specific part of the voting base, but he hasn't talked a lot about how he wants to bring in people who may be Joe Biden supporters or Pete Buttigieg supporters. And and I think that's going to be an interesting question for him, what exactly he plans to do on that front. I mean, he, yeah, his, his message is more we're going to take the Democratic Party on a new path. Follow me more yes. than I am going to come come to you, at least mm-hmm. at least at least yeah. thus far. Adam, what, what what say you? Yeah, I think I mean, it's not to skip New Hampshire entirely here, but it's why Nevada is going to be such an interesting test for him, because, you know, as you know, if we assume that New Hampshire is going to play out the way that the polls are suggesting that that he wins in New Hampshire. But again, you know, he may do it with less than 30 percent of the vote. So, if, you know, even if he is, you know, the nominal winner of Iowa and New Hampshire, but you only have less than 30% of the vote in both of those states, right? It's tough to really claim that, you have, that you're that you some commanding frontrunner in a Democratic primary. He's done a great job of sort of you know harnessing his base of young progressive voters, even uh, some working class voters, but his base is still overwhelmingly white. But one area where we have seen some, some, some inruns that he's made with non-white voters has been Latino voters in a lot of national polls. And Nevada will be the first state where we see a significant number of Latino voters participating in, in a Democratic nominating contest. So we haven't had a lot of fresh polling in, in Nevada since the Iowa caucuses. But what came out kind of before that showed, you know, he was, you know, kind of right up there with, with Joe Biden in that state. And, you know, if Biden has another disappointing finish in New Hampshire, that could hurt his standing there in Nevada. So all of a sudden, if you're looking at Bernie Sanders, and let's just say under this scenario, he wins three states in a row, South Carolina could still be tricky for him, an overwhelmingly black electorate there, and he hasn't quite made uh, the inroads that he, he would need to with that voting block to probably you know walk away with, with, with some sort of victory there. But then you know the Super Tuesday is just a couple days after that, and he is far ahead of the field in a lot of respects in a lot of those big, delegate-rich states that vote on March 3rd, California, Texas. He's already airing ads there. He has a lot of staff on the ground. So, I mean, so he's very well positioned, I think, bare minimum to be a, a finalist in this race, and if the more moderate wing of the party doesn't sort of rally around someone soon, whether that's Pete Buttigieg, whether that's, you know, Joe Biden can manufacture some sort of comeback or whether it is, you know, someone like Michael Bloomberg in in a couple of weeks, he's going to be on a pretty clear path here to be kind of the the leading candidate in this race. You know, we should say, I mean, reports this week that he raised $25 He's just got a ton of money and and it's all small donors. So you can just keep on going back to those people and they can keep on giving to him. Right. And that was just in January. I mean, that's more Mm -hmm. money than we saw candidates raise in an entire quarter and an entire fundraising quarter. And with the the momentum that he seems to have now, you would expect that that fundraising, as it does usually for candidates who do well, is only going to pick up and increase. And like Adam said, it's it's almost an inexhaustible supply because not as if his donors are hitting the, the, the right. donation cap, right? So let's move on to the candidate who also sort of kind of won Iowa, or at least can claim a split decision, maybe, Pete Buttigieg. Emily, I think the question for him is, is this the high point of his race or does he have the staying power to perform well in places like Nevada, South Carolina, where at least according to the polls right now, he's not doing so well? Yeah. You know, I think he's doing everything he can, despite the fact that because of the kind of mess that the Iowa caucuses were on on election night, he didn't get perhaps the bump that that a surprise victor or 
tied for first place victor would get. He's been all over the media. He's been doing all the national television programs. He just did interviews with many of the local New Hampshire publications. I saw this morning him talking to the Boston Globe, the New Hampshire union leader, talking about he he thinks he can actually win New Hampshire. He's certainly the only one in the in the tracking polls that they've been doing that seems to be rising right mm-hmm. now. Biden's sinking a little bit. Bernie's steady. Buttigieg is on the rise. New Hampshire, in certain ways, is has the same favorable demographics for him as Iowa. And he does a best. lot of white people. Yes, basically. essentially. <laughs> basically, yeah. But that also speaks to something that you mentioned with Bernie, Nevada and South Carolina. If Bernie's main competition is Pete Buttigieg in those states, that actually works to Bernie's advantage because uh-huh. Buttigieg is, does even worse with voters of color than Bernie does. And mm-hmm. Bernie's had some time, especially with Latino voters, but also black voters. I think he's pulling in second place in, in South Carolina right now or tied with Tom Steyer. So if it's a Buttigieg-Bernie race, I think that Bernie could actually cement his front runner standing after Nevada and, and South Carolina. Buttigieg, you're right. It's hard to see exactly where he goes after New Hampshire. If he performs well in New Hampshire, what he has to hope is that that bounce that he picks up from a strong showing in Iowa and a strong showing in New Hampshire start to earn him a second look from some of these other voters in, in other places who maybe weren't considering him before. I mean, look, we have to give Buttigieg some credit here because and I think we even said it on this podcast, it seemed like he was slipping back in the polls through the month of January for someone who at one point looked like a clear front runner in Iowa. And lo and behold, the results come in and he he finishes apparently second in the raw vote. He might still win the state delegate fight with Bernie Sanders. And you have to give his campaign a lot of credit. They campaigned aggressively in a lot of rural areas, mm-hmm. not where you would necessarily think that he would perform well in a lot of suburban areas, you know, where there is just an, an advantage, you know, there, there's almost an imbalance doing well there yields better results in the state delegate count than it does in some urban areas if you're able to run up the score in some precincts. And that's why he can trail Bernie in the raw vote, but still be competitive and maybe even ahead in the state delegate tally. You know, out of one thing I will say, just to, to, to maybe make the case for Buttigieg, and I agree in, in terms of the, the opponents that Bernie could pick, if it, it was between Biden, Warren, or Buttigieg, I think they would pick Buttigieg every single time if it became a one-on-one fight because of his struggles with non-white voters. But he is someone who has been in the national polls slip back to even, you know, like five, six, seven percent support. It would follow that he might get a real bump nationally following the Iowa and possibly New Hampshire races. Yeah, absolutely. But but again, you know, to, to kind of go back to the point that, that Emily made earlier, I mean, all of this chaos that came out of the Iowa caucuses, that has been the dominating storyline. That's been the headlines. It hasn't been Pete Buttigieg surpasses expectations and, you know, either ties with Bernie or wins the Iowa caucuses. So that puts the onus on him even more to really capitalize on whatever momentum he he can get out of Iowa in New Hampshire, because if he doesn't repeat that in New Hampshire, again, a state that demographically should really favor him, it's it's difficult to see what he can fall back on. You know, Joe Biden, here his supporters after his disappointing finish in Iowa, they say, well, we'll hopefully have a little bit of a rebound in New Hampshire, but then it's on the Nevada and South Carolina. And that's South Carolina in particular is our firewall. We've had a big lead there in the polls. Joe Biden's really popular with black voters. That's what we can fall back on. That's kind of our safety net. You know, and we can probably debate later on this podcast whether or not he can really count on that. But for Buttigieg, once you get past Iowa and New Hampshire, those are the two states his campaign really put all of their resources into, right? He doesn't have the, the sort of 
staff levels in the states that that vote after this that his uh, rivals do. He hasn't spent the money on TV that some of his rivals have. So if he doesn't capitalize in New Hampshire, and I think, I mean, baseline, he needs to finish ahead of Joe Biden again and probably needs, you know, a pretty at, at least a strong second place finish. We, we, we talked Sanders, about this yesterday. Right? We think it's strong, a very strong second or possibly just even win it outright. Right. Which, you know, seems unlikely. Involved. And, seems and, unlikely, and it, but again, sure. the expectations could work in his favor there where I think everyone would be very shocked if Bernie Sanders does not win the New Hampshire primary on Tuesday. Right. So I think at that point, then it just becomes a matter of the margins and where people kind of finish in that pecking order after that. So I think Buttigieg was kind of hurt by the, this this caucus chaos and it maybe helped Biden a little bit where he hasn't maybe been under the, the same level of scrutiny that he would have been if we would have known on Monday night that he was going to finish a distant fourth place. But, you know, since Buttigieg is kind of the, the fresh face on the scene, hasn't held, you know, an office higher than uh, South Bend mayor, I think, you know, the, the pressure is going to be on him to sort of repeat or, or have a, you know, either repeat or have a, a pretty similarly strong performance in, in New Hampshire on, on Tuesday. Yeah, we, we should emphasize again, I mean, his support in polls among non-white voters it isn't just like it's low. Like it's, it's low it's for Elizabeth like Warren. <laughs> right. Elizabeth Warren has low levels of support among non-white voters. Pete Buttigieg in some polls literally almost has none. Right. You know, he just isn't able to break through for whatever reason. And, you know, that's an extended conversation right. that we can have. But he just isn't able to. And if you just can't win the Democratic nomination for the right. presidency if you have no support among non-white voters while splitting the white support among a handful of different candidates. Okay, let's move on to, you know, if Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg had the best Monday night, if anyone had the best Monday night after everything that happened. But if those two candidates had the best performance Monday night, undoubtedly the candidate who did the worst was Joe Biden, a candidate who seemed to put everything he had into Iowa in the last month, campaigning there aggressively, spending a lot of money between both his campaign and his super PAC, really banking on an electability argument in the final week to try to carry him across the finish line. Instead, he finishes a distant fourth, which, let's not overthink this, would seem to be a, a devastating blow for a candidate who we all considered the front runner when this year began. And he acknowledged as much when he started to campaign this week in New Hampshire. He called it a gut punch. Emily, where, where do things stand with, with Joe Biden's campaign right now? And can he, can he recover? You know, it's an open question how much this will hurt him, because as we've talked about, because there was so much uncertainty on caucus night and we're still getting results, it may not be as big a blow to him as it otherwise would have been. It's still not great. I mean, it was still pretty clear coming out that he was in fourth place and very far back from, from Buttigieg and, and Bernie. He still has name ID. He still looks OK, not great in New Hampshire. And as we said, he has these firewalls in, in Nevada and South Carolina. But certainly if there becomes a narrative that emerges that he's just underperforming, that hurts him down the road because his whole argument is about electability and beating Trump and being sort of the steady hand. And that that starts to be questioned if he can't even beat his rivals in the Democratic primary. I, I certainly think with him and Buttigieg, there's a little bit of a zero sum game playing out that those those folks who might have otherwise voted for Biden seem to want a fresh face. And mm -hmm. Biden's the opposite of that. And, you know, the doubts that we've talked about all throughout this race about his age and his capacity seem to be seem to be really weighing on people. I mean, the, the electability part of it that you mentioned seems to me to be the biggest danger for him, for a candidate who is supposed to be all about winning and his ability to defeat Donald Trump, losing in Iowa, losing in New Hampshire, possibly losing in Nevada. Mm -hmm. You're talking about weeks worth of time 
where he, he wouldn't have won anything. And do people start to doubt that? Now, whether or not that's fair that your performance in a primary translates into your performance in a general election is a really good question. There's a lot of reason to think that it doesn't translate that way. But I do know that voters very often see it that way. Maybe not surprisingly, Emily, we saw Joe Biden on the campaign trail start to go after Buttigieg a little bit. Yeah, he probably needs to do that to knock him down a little bit, stop some of that momentum. Mm-hmm. From what I can tell and have read, it, it's, it sounds like Biden is kind of getting back to maybe his roots in terms of being a little more direct and folksy and, and off the cuff, which people tend to like about him. You know, even with the gaffes, it's like, that's just Joe, that he's authentic. If he can sort of knock Buttigieg or at least halt his momentum and at the same time really remind people of the things they like about Biden over all these years, and particularly when he was Obama's vice president. You know, New Hampshire, the same way Iowa, people went into that caucus with a whole lot of options and and a lot of people undecided. New Hampshire voters are still, there's a big chunk that are undecided as well. And and I think the next few days on this debate on Friday night are going to be really important for Biden. Yeah, I mean, Biden, in so many words, questioning whether or not the former mayor of a small town of 100,000 people is really the best bet for Democrats in a general election, you know, and, he, and, he went, and we should know he went after Sanders as, as well, and, and he, uh, pretty pretty pointedly. He 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 did. So you know, look, they're they're a campaign that seems to recognize the threat in the place that they're in right now. I mean, Adam, the the real concern is what would poor results in Iowa, possibly New Hampshire, and then Nevada mean for a place like South Carolina or North Carolina, right. which is supposed to be a firewall for him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. If, if we're talking about someone who finished in, you know, a, a relatively distant fourth in Iowa, and if it wasn't the former vice president w- who had the South Carolina firewall, and we didn't have all of this kind of mess with with the caucus results, I think we might be talking about right now is Biden's campaign over. But obviously, we're you know we do kind of give him the benefit of the doubt because he has held such a consistent lead in in South Carolina and even Nevada to a lesser extent. But that doesn't mean that he he can get away with another poor showing in New Hampshire. We saw some new polling just out this morning that puts him at about 12% in New Hampshire, and that would place him about third or fourth. So all of a sudden, you know, you know, do those voters who have stuck with him in Nevada and South Carolina, those contests are still a couple of weeks away. That's a lifetime in, in, in a primary fight. Do they start to look at other candidates if they think, oh, I, I went with Joe Biden because I thought he was the safe choice. I thought he was the, the most electable. But you come out with, with poor showings in the first two states, you can't even beat you know, your own rivals in the Democratic primary. All of a sudden, those arguments start to take a hit. You know, and where do those voters start to look after that is anybody's guess. But I think for Biden, again, you know, I don't think he has to win New Hampshire, but it's, it's sort of the flip side of Buttigieg. I think he probably has to finish ahead of Mayor Pete in, in New Hampshire. To come back, of, kid. To, 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 to sort back of in. reclaim that mantle, uh, you know, kind of on, on the more moderate, in the more moderate lane of, of the party here, uh, if he wants to go in to Nevada or South Carolina with with the, you know any sort of momentum. But but he's but he's really playing catch up, both in terms of the polls and just in terms of he hasn't spent much time or poured many resources into New Hampshire in terms of TV ads, in terms of staffing, and just in terms of, of visits to the they, state. I mean, they went all in in, in Iowa, and it, it very evidently did not work out. Just two quick points about Biden and, and, and Iowa. I mean, one, you have to say, and this is actually a point in his favor as the race moves on, that the caucus format really seemed to limit him. You know, he has, of course, a lot of support among older voters. And there's just a, a lot of evidence that older voters don't like the caucus. They don't like to spend the two or three hours that it takes to turn out and participate. And so even if Iowa as a state was not very favorable to him, the, the process, the caucus process was not favorable. So in theory, You move on to a primary in New Hampshire and maybe things are a little bit better for him, that his supporters are more likely to turn out. 
Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. One other thing to, to leave us with, we haven't talked about Amy Klobuchar here in this race because she finished a, a distant fifth. You know, I went back and looked at the Real Clear Politics polling average from Iowa. If you looked in mid-fall, Klobuchar in this race was stuck with Andrew Yang and Tom Steyer at like 2 or 3% in Iowa. You know, she's going to end up, she finished in double digits, you know, something around 12%, I think, of, of the raw vote. And just speculating out loud, her rise, even only to fifth place, is what really might have hurt Joe Biden. A lot of those voters might have been people who in the midfall were assuming that they were going to vote for Joe Biden or at least interested, decided to go with Amy Klobuchar instead. And I just wonder with, again, a more pragmatic, moderate message if she didn't undercut him a little bit in, in this race. And if she finishes, you know, f- you know, fifth again in New Hampshire, you know, how much longer can she really stay in the race? I don't know how much of a rationale she would have. And if, if she would happen to drop out after that, that could benefit someone like Biden, but could also benefit someone like Buttigieg, depending on sort of you know, where those two finish on Tuesday. Fifth place is a is a ticket to ride. I'm not sure that really, I'm not sure that works. Uh, Emily, just real quick. Look, Elizabeth Warren finished third in this race. It, It seems to me that she has the same problem now that she has had really for the last few months where she is stuck between Bernie Sanders on her left and Pete Buttigieg on her right, kind of squeezing her and there just aren't enough voters between those two for her to win. Where do things stand with with her? Is she going to be able to break out in this race or or is skepticism warranted? She has a lot riding on New Hampshire. She's from a neighboring state of Massachusetts. It will be a blow to her to finish third, certainly to be a third place finisher in Iowa and New Hampshire and then go into a place like Nevada or South Carolina where she hasn't had as much of a presence is going to be really tough. That said, her campaign has been for a while now building out staff and organization in states that vote in March and April. She has a decent amount of money, not like Bernie, not like Pete Buttigieg. Uh, I think she could stick around for a while. And her hope and strategy, I assume, would be that as others drop out, if, if, for example, Biden fails, if Amy Klobuchar and Yang and some of these other more minor players start to end their campaigns, that she could pick up some of that support because she is a lot of polls show her when when voters are asked what their second choice is she is the top vote getter because mm-hmm. she's able to pull from a lot of different pockets you know mm-hmm. educated slightly more moderate folks obviously she's got her liberal supporters but she's a little more palatable to people than bernie is so i think her bet is that she has to do well enough to keep going and raise money in these early states and then start to pull in some of the other support, sort of be the alternative to people who neither want Bernie nor want Buttigieg, essentially. And and an interesting (laughs) scenario and a very realistic one to consider is what if Warren finishes second in New Hampshire? That's that's very Mm -hmm. much on the table. And and actually, you know, none of the more moderate candidates get into that top two. All of a sudden then, you know, Warren could have a little bit of a, maybe get a little bit of a bump from that if she does better than expected. She stays in the race. if you have, you know, four viable candidates going into Super Tuesday, a fifth if you include Bloomberg 
all of a sudden, you know, it's going to be well, a pretty, a pretty, bat, pretty right, much. A, a pretty, <laughs> that could that also turns into a pretty chaotic situation. Here. Bloomberg continues to loom over everything in this race. Okay, before we move on to tell me something I don't know, Adam, just a, a quick, <laughs> brief question: Are we ever going to have a uh, Democratic Iowa caucuses again? Um, well, we may, but but they won't be first. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and, and this was even an open question going into Monday was, you know, I think there was a lot more open criticism from Democrats about both Iowa going first and just the caucus process in general, right? You know, there, there's always been sort of these attacks on, on caucuses versus primaries as caucuses not being very democratic and, you know, really only allowing a select few people to participate. And also questions about why is Iowa going first? You know, the Democratic Party is more diverse than ever. And we have an overwhelmingly white state that's sort of kicking off the process. So I think that was already, I think, a question Democrats were going to have to grapple with after this primary season is, do we want to shake up the primary calendar? But after this mess that we've experienced the past few days, I think there's no question that we're going to have a different state kicking off this process in, in 2024. Emily, any chance? I agree with Adam. I saw some headline breaking news out of the New York Times saying that their analysis showed there's a lot of discrepancies between the results. These were efforts by the Iowa party to be more transparent, to be more inclusive in the way they were conducting this. And and clearly it wasn't ready for prime time and it's really backfired. But I think it just reinforces sort of the outdatedness of this entire system and and our primary approach and so I, I agree. So so the jockeying now for, for which state is going to yeah. get to go first is going to be really fascinating yeah. to watch <laughs> in, the, in the next couple of years. Uh, when, when the primary uh, takes a pause at some point, we're just going to have an entire episode dedicated to which state is yeah. the best, which state is the most representative of the Democratic Party, and why should it go first? I have a feeling about 49 states will be competing for that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. May okay, let's, uh, let's move on to tell me something I don't know. Emily, Adam, if you both could share something out of your notebook, some insight, something fresh, new, or original. Emily, you're up first. So I shared this with you guys last night. The uh, Wesleyan Media Project tracks media spending by the candidates. And it was striking to me that a week out from New Hampshire, so as of Tuesday, neither Joe Biden's campaign nor his super PAC had aired any ads in New Hampshire. Um, I checked the FEC reports and it doesn't look like, at least in the last day or two, that the PAC has ran any ads. So we know that much. Biden's campaign might have started running some ads in the last day, but it's, it's telling that his campaign is not doing TV up there, despite how important this race is to him. I would, I would say it's very, very, very telling for sure. Adam, what do you got? Well, on the flip side, I do want to give a little bit of hope to the, to the Biden supporters who are who are listening to, to this podcast. Um, maybe not all, all doom and gloom for the former vice president. So the, the, the last Democratic presidential candidate to finish fourth place in the Iowa caucuses and go on to become the Democratic nominee was the comeback kid himself, Bill Clinton. In 1992, in those results, uh, Tom Harkin had an overwhelming victory being the home state senator. Unsurprising there. Uncommitted was actually the second place finisher that year, 12%. And Bill Clinton was a distant fourth place with less than 3% of the vote, but he had a, a surprise second place finish in New Hampshire, and that sort of catapulted his his campaign the rest of the way, and he ultimately won the nomination. So I think uh, Joe Biden is hoping for a similar scenario here in, in 2020. And I would just like to point out um, what a week it's been for the DNC. It seems like ancient history at this point, but it is a committee that received just an awful lot of criticism for, in a way, changing the debate qualifications uh, for a debate later this month in a way that makes it clear that Mike Bloomberg is going to be able to participate in the debate, earn 
direct criticism from candidates like Elizabeth Warren for that. You had their host committee um, in, in Milwaukee for the DNC convention uh, later this summer. Two top officials forced out just this week over complaints over the workplace environment. And of course, you had the mess in Iowa. The DNC does not run the Iowa Democratic caucuses. That would be the Iowa Democratic Party. But for one thing, most people don't see it that way. And for another, the DNC is at least involved in an advisory role in trying to help the Iowa Democratic Party. Didn't seem like that went well. And it's just amazing to me for a committee that has for three years taken just really considerable measures to try to bring everyone on board with the primary process committee, starting with the Unity Reform Commission that they formed to try to uh, satisfy Bernie Sanders supporters, really doing their best to get everyone to buy into the system. Almost everything in the last week has been aimed at <laughs> seemingly at undoing the, the goodwill that's been built up. And it's a big problem for the party. I mean, you were already seeing someone like James Carville calling for Tom Perez to step aside. I don't think we're quite at that point yet uh, for the, the DNC chairman. But it's a sign of just how angry people are at the moment. Um, and what a tough week it's been for the Democratic Party in general. OK, I want to thank uh, Adam and, and Emily for coming on as always. You bet. Thanks for having me. And I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler. And also, of course, want to thank our executive producer, Davin Cobra. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.